Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and I am so uh, glad for many reasons. One is I get to spend some time with you today, which I'm looking forward to. And if you uh, are new to the show, um, you can always get whatever you missed on the podcast. And I always want to head head over to MyFaithRadio.com. There's an Afternoon with Bill show page. So if you hear uh, an interview that you think, oh, I I should send this to my aunt. She'd love to hear this. Or I've got a friend at work that needs to hear this. I think it would be uh, wise to get a conversation started with a friend by starting by sending them uh, an interview that you hear on Faith Radio. I've heard many people say it's made a huge difference in their uh, reaching out, their evangelism, and their ability to connect with people about faith. And I... uh, Always want to encourage you to do that. So I'm so glad to have Kim Cotola with me in studio here. She's an award-winning writer and broadcaster, and she is the author of Cradle My Heart. And she is an incredible resource when it comes to pro-life news. And I called her last week because I saw a news story, which I found absolutely fascinating. It happened, I think, last weekend in Philadelphia, where a woman, a 20-year-old pregnant woman, was shot and she died but when they got out of the hospital, she was dead, but they were able to deliver her baby in her womb who was living. So I thought I'll get Kim on to talk about that. Kim, welcome. Hey, Bill. It's not really nice to be here. Yeah, it's really nice to have you in studio versus on yeah. the phone. Yeah. yeah. So that story was shocking to me, and I, I just wonder, what is your perspective on that? Well, I mean, it's one of those stories that where it's, I mean, you get the hair stands up on the back of your neck because you just think, oh, the value of the life of this child and the horrible sacrifice of the mother, you know, you no one should ever have to withstand any such circumstances. But it really made me think about, you know, exceptions to the law for the life of the mother, you know, where you would where you would sacrifice the child to save a mother's life. And I think most Christian uh, apologists and ethicists would say that that is ethically sound. If you must make a choice between between one life or the other, that it is ethically sound to choose a mother's life. I've also heard, though, from obstetricians who say, in 30 years practice, I've never had any such circumstance. Mm. You know, if if mother's life was being threatened, we save the child and then we save the mother or, you know, whatever order things have to happen. But they've never had a circumstance where, you know, an, a pregnancy unfolding short of violence and what you've described, Bill, would be, you know, a pretext for taking the life of the baby. And um, so it it just makes it so clear that God's plan for new life, you know, is within the mother's womb, Mm -hmm. and yet it is new life. And yet his or her life has its own intrinsic value from the very beginning. Kim, who would have made that call? This uh, woman's shot, she's bleeding to death, they can't save her life, and they realize she's pregnant, and they deliver the baby. Did they have to get permission to deliver the baby? Well, I guess, yeah, that's a really good question, Bill. I mean, I... If a spouse were present, I suppose they could ask the spouse, mm-hmm. but I would imagine that, you know, you would, 
I mean, you're... Every human instinct yes. says oh, the ba- a baby. Yes. We've got to save this yes. baby. You know, we've got we've got to save everyone here in this situation. But I suppose you could ask a spouse. I don't know why a pregnancy would threaten a woman who's been shot. I don't. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I can't reason but, reckon that out in my mind. But yeah, I yeah. mean, I guess it would be the medical personnel on scene. But they pick up a a bleeding, dying woman Ugh. on the street i don't know how much time they have to try to Ugh. seek out a, a relative or uh, the father of probably this none. child probably not so they made a decision to save the life of this baby so i'm i'm always glad when that happened i was very thrilled that that happened but right. also seems like there was a baby and the doctors decided to save that baby right mm. right yeah it's a, a really difficult yeah. horrible case but it really shows us you know that I mean, there's something so tragic when a mother dies. Now this child's going to grow up motherless, which is tragic. Tragic. But on the other hand, you also think all of her loved ones who will miss her have this child to comfort and console. No life can ever replace another. I'm not saying anything like that. But uh, I just remember when my brother died, I was uh, I was going to help with my uh with my little Finley, the grandchild who made me a grandma. We have now, we have eight grandbabies. And I was commuting to Chicago to help them. Because daycare in Chicago will eat up one salary right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one kid. <laughs> so I was uh, I was going to help my husband add flight benefits through his job, and we could do that, so I was going. And my brother died. He had multiple myeloma, my younger brother. And when... Seeing her in the immediate aftermath, I mean, I just remember the first time I saw her, she must have been about six months old. Okay, bye. Have a good day at work. And the door is closed and it's just me and baby. And that little life on my chest, just, you know, the, the circle of life was so intense and it was so lovely to be able to embrace a new one and having just said goodbye to my brother in Mm -hmm. such an unnatural way. Yeah. You know, for him to have died so young, a younger such, brother, it just doesn't, oh, it's hor- it was really hard. That's such a powerful image. But, but a, yes, a little baby. children are so healing mm-hmm. to, yeah. to our hearts and souls. Kim, I'd like to also add into the discussion we're having about pregnancy puts women at a much higher risk of partner violence. Oh, nobody knows this story, but it's, it's, if you think about it, Bill, okay, you're the man in an unwanted pregnancy. You have fathered a child you do not wish to father, okay? Uh, you do not wish to parent. The biological reality is you are already a father of mm-hmm. this new human life. So you don't wish to parent this child. So you say you're having an abortion, and she says, oh, no, I'm not. And he knows that he can, you know, get her to an abortion facility, pay for it, and have it done. If he can just manage to coerce that or persuade or mm-hmm. force and so if he can't, he will coerce or force by other means. You know, there are a lot of stories of guys slipping the abortion pills wow. to women who are pregnant without yeah. their knowledge. Evil. It's it's very yeah. evil. But yes, there's a, there was a study done last year. I researched this when I was writing Cradle My Heart, mm-hmm. which was published in 2012. And this is not uh, a pro-life propaganda talking point. This came from 
private security firms that are in charge of workplace security, okay? And what is the most dangerous situation Mm -hmm. in the workplace for private security? A pregnant woman whose partner doesn't want her to be pregnant because he will often come to the workplace to carry out the violence. You know, maybe she's avoiding him, restraining order or, or whatever. But yes, a woman is much more at risk of dying from homicide when she's pregnant than from any other cause. Yeah. Let me read this that you provided for me. A 2021 study of maternal deaths in the U.S. found that women were more more than twice as likely to die from homicide during pregnancy and the year following childbirth than from hypertensive disorders, hemorrhage, and infection. Yeah. The risk of pregnancy is partner violence. Yeah the greatest risk to a woman's health. So, and I think that I, in my mind, it's a very easy connection to see how this flows from abortion policy. You've already dehumanized the child Mm -hmm. and saying their life is expendable, his or her life is expendable. So if a man feels threatened enough, he may just make a mental leap that the partner's life is expendable as well. I, I just see it as, you know, abortion is a culture of death. That's what it, it is. is. And this is why we can never we can never picture a scenario where our Savior says, yep, I would get rid of it. Mm-hmm. I just cannot. I'm saying that and I'm laughing because it's absurd. It's absurd. It's completely absurd. And I know women are facing crises. And I know it may be the crises. That, okay, I'll give you an example. And she gave me permission to talk about this. One of the women I counseled at a pregnancy center in an abortion recovery ministry said... I've already had a baby. I know this is a baby, but my partner became violent and he actually pulled out a gun and shot up a family picnic. And I already have a daughter and I cannot expose her to this man's violence by being tied to him through a child that we're going to raise together or that he's going to try to, you know, be have a presence in the child's life. And, you know, my heart just went out to her. Because her her solution was, well, I have to have an abortion because that will make him go away and leave me alone. You know, that will make me safe from his violence. And of all the stories that I've heard through the years, and I've heard, you know, many, many different varieties of stories. But, yeah, women, women will choose abortion to try to flee violence that's happening elsewhere in their lives. Mm-hmm. Violence in the home. Um is getting to be more and more of a public health problem. Yes. That's hard. Well, it's not hard to believe, but it's very scary. Lockdown didn't really help with that. No, it did not. It did not. All right. Kim Cotola is my guest, and we're talking about pro-life issues. If you have a question uh, for Kim, let me know what it is. 877-933-2484. We've got lots to talk about when we come back. Because of the Supreme Court decision that's yet to be uh, released. We're looking forward to uh, to that when hopefully it's sooner than later. We'll be right back. back with Kim Katola. She's an award-winning writer, broadcaster, 
and she is the author of Cradle My Heart and is also the host of Cradle My Heart Radio on Faith Talk 1360 in Phoenix on Thursday's afternoon. All right, Kim, this big decision coming up at the Supreme Court, uh, that the protests outside Brett Kavanaugh's house and Amy Coney Barrett's and the civil unrest that seems to be just around the corner. How are you processing all this? I cannot understand why they didn't go ahead and announce their decision once the draft was leaked. They must have anticipated that there would be, you know, the types of repercussions we're seeing right now. And so I just don't understand it, Bill. I don't understand how we don't know who the leaker was. I was joking before we went on the air that, you know, some authority somewhere probably knows my pet's blood type. Right. Because, uh, you know, it's it's in a computer somewhere. Yeah. And so we can find out anything about anyone right now, can't yeah. we? Uh, we can track anything about anyone, and yet we have no idea who did this. Is anyone even looking? You know, I, I just don't... Um, I don't understand. And the, the, I guess the point of it for us, Bill, and my point in bringing up, you know, this uh, horrible situation we discussed before the break of a woman trying to avoid a violent partner by pursuing an abortion is that, you know, if if abortion, if Roe v. Wade is overturned tomorrow, abortion doesn't go away, first of all, legally, because the states can decide to make it legal, as it was in 1973 in New York before the Supreme Court ruled that it was a, you know, a constitutional provision. So, first of all, you know, it's going to go to the states, and some states are already preparing to be abortion havens. Minnesota is one of them mm-hmm. because of South Dakota having a strict law uh, that will be triggered if Roe v. Wade is overturned. I think Colorado is another. Um, there, are, you know, there are states that are trying to become sanctuaries for. New Mexico, uh, obviously, mm-hmm. and New Mexico is one of, I think, seven states where abortion is legal through the day of birth. So, you know, um, there are seven states. People may not know that, but that that's, you know, and the Washington Post, when they fact-checked that, gave four Pinocchios to someone who said, well, that's not true. Well, of course it's true. Mm-hmm. It, it's, yes, uh, because states have a right to rule such a thing, and some states have. Maryland is another one, Colorado. And so the thing for us as Christians is we really do need to ask ourselves, you know, how does Scripture inform us on cases like this, you know, of a woman, you know, trying to avoid violence, for example? What would Jesus say to her? And what do I, as his representative, say to her, having made that decision? But if you're ever ever given the opportunity for someone to who confides that fear in you, how do you replace it with hope? You know, how do you engender uh, an attitude that says, I can do this. This is possible. You know, God is in this. This this pregnancy is a gift. I can do hard things. You know, I, I, I'm so shocked that the abortion industrial complex is still able to persuade young women that abortion is somehow empowering. Because if you look at Beyonce... Serena Williams, any number of extremely accomplished young women in their childbearing years who are rocking it on the tennis court, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> full-term pregnant. Mm-hmm. Motherhood doesn't stop you from living your life and pursuing your goals and achieving your dreams, you know. And so um, there's, it's an exploitation of fear when women are told that they need abortion. It's an exploitation of 
fear of the future when they're told that the way to empower themselves is to shirk motherhood. Um, and, and I think that for us as followers of Jesus Christ and as his representatives, we need to just cast a completely different vision for young women about you know what motherhood could mean for them and what they're really capable of and what will help them to accomplish. Yeah, that's exactly, I think, what should be done is casting a new a new vision because mm-hmm. the fear factor is very much there especially if there's the possibility of violence in the home or violence at mm. work because the father is not in favor of the pregnancy mm-hmm. so yeah. yeah and i think you know the 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 thing uh, the fear factor right um if if you if you look at the protesters the really, really angry women, like those women who stood on the Supreme Court when Dodds was being argued originally, Supreme Court steps and took abortion pills, which is, excuse me, that's really absurd mm-hmm. because it triggers something that you should not be having happen in public. You know, you're going to need a tub, you're going to need uh, towels, you're going to need hot water, you're going to need provision for yourself if when your abortion pill kicks in mm-hmm. to be doing this anywhere publicly is unhinged mm-hmm. it's mentally ill i don't think that's going too far to say that and what drives that what would drive a person to do such a thing to make such a demonstration what is the what is the ideology the the ideology is i am i alone am responsible for my future i alone am responsible for Uh, having a good life, creating a good life. I alone uh, control whether or not and when I become a parent. And, you know, the sad, the really sad part about that last one is when a woman has made the decision on that, you know, you can always have another baby later. You know, there'll be a lot of whispering voices Mm -hmm. to every woman who is in a problem pregnancy. It's just bad timing. You can always have another baby later. When she doesn't get pregnant again later, you know, the devastation that sets in is huge because abortion has given us this illusion of control that we really can completely plan parenthood down to the day Mm -hmm. that we want to create life and we want to become parents and you know, and, and it's also the reason why, Bill, babies with Down syndrome are subject to elimination through abortion. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, well, I planned this. I didn't plan for that. I planned for a perfect, typical baby, not a baby that has a challenge. So <laughs> I get to get rid of that. That wasn't my plan. You know, and so the fear takes so many different uh, manifestations and recognizing it as such, I think, is really key. Mm -hmm. And the lifelong effects of having an abortion, it's got to ebb and flow, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. And for me, so my abortion happened in my early 20s. And for me, I'm still, God is still gracing me with new moments Mm -hmm. of recovery. Yeah. You know, and they happen in moments as any grief experience unfolds in your life, right? But becoming a grandmother. You know, I mean, my mother has passed away now, and I know she was trying to protect me when she promoted abortion to me. Um, and so I don't blame her. And I forgave her long, long, long ago for her role in that abortion decision. But when I was holding that grandbaby, 
I realized she was talking about eliminating her grandchild. And it had never struck me. Yikes. It had never struck me. Wow. You know, and I have already, I mean, like I said, I published a book on this 10 years ago, you know, but that, that insight happened for me maybe eight years ago. And so, yes, as my life progresses and as I learn more and as I gain wisdom, you know, with God's grace, yeah, it is, it's, it's an unfolding, um, but it's an unfolding in a, in a direction, you know, mm-hmm. the, the arc of faith bends toward, <laughs> toward God's goodness. Mm-hmm. Boy, the idea that you can make childbearing when you want and make it so perfect is just not the way God works. Well, and you know, this, this culture that has that mindset is really harming women who have miscarriages. I bet. You know, and so every year, one out of every four pregnancies will end in abortion and one out of every four pregnancies will end in miscarriage, right? And so, first of all, only 50% of pregnancies result in a live birth. So, I mean, on some, it's really a miracle every time a baby is born, really, a 50-50 chance. You think about that, you know. But if you have a miscarriage, it's like, well, you must not have planned it, right? I mean, <laughs> how do you account for it if we're all supposed to be in control all the time? How do you account for that? And it's devastating to couples, you know, many will come to the conclusion, oh, we just weren't meant to be with each other, or this would never have happened to us, mm-hmm. you know. Kim, we just have a couple of minutes left. Mm-hmm. Um, question, I hear so many young adults use the phrase, my body, my decision. What is the best way to respond to this uh, so as to not anger them? Well, it is your body, and you do get to make a decision, but it, there's your child has a body if you're pregnant. You know, and when Planned Parenthood puts out their annual report and talks about how many abortions they performed, they're, they're, they only do a third of those in the country. Many are done elsewhere in private offices, et cetera. But they're responsible for, I think, somewhere around 300,000, about a third of the one million that happen every year. Mm-hmm. That There's a number, Bill. It's a number of individuals. There is a body count. There's another body Amen. involved. Mm-hmm. And I think the more that we can help women to see that and to see that with greater, you know, responsibility comes, you know, there's, there's greater love that should be happening rather than greater license to eliminate that Mm -hmm. life. Another listener said in here in Fargo three weeks ago, a boyfriend of a young pregnant woman ran into a restaurant and shot her and a child inside the place. Not unusual. Mm -hmm. Very, very tragic, but not unusual. Mm -hmm. And so we still have lots more questions coming in, Kim. So I didn't time this well because we're out of time. But <laughs> Well, I am at cradlemyheart.org. Okay. I'm pretty active on Twitter at Kim Kitola. And so, you know, anyone who has a question or if there's a way that we can do it on your social media, Bill, I'm mm-hmm. yeah. very uh, open to that. What advice does Kim offer to women who see an abortion as a way to escape violence like the example she shared? So those are the kind of questions that came in. Unfortunately, we can't answer it, but next time. I will be back. Yeah. Kim Katola <laughs> has been my guest. We'll take a break, and when we come back, Dr. Greg Heddington is going to do some teaching on Second Peter. We'll be right back. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. 
It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arnold. I always feel like I have a lot in common with my listeners because we get to learn together, which is what we're going to do coming up here in the next 30 minutes. I'm going to be joined by Dr. Greg Heddington as we continue our study on various passages from First and Second Peter. Today, we're going to go into Second Peter chapter 3. Dr. Greg Heddington is a Bible teacher and comes to us all the way from Dallas, Texas. Greg, welcome. Bill, it's always talk, great to talk about the Word of God. Oh, amen to that. Let's jump into Second Peter chapter 3. Well, welcome to our study of First and Second Peter, as today we look at chapter 3 of Second Peter. In the first half of this lesson, we'll cover the second coming of our Lord and heaven. We should be able to address those two subjects easily in about 15 mm-hmm. minutes, don't you think? Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Me too. Well, in the second half of this lesson, we'll talk about our preparation for heaven. After all, we think about heaven, we wonder about heaven, and we have lots of questions about heaven. And although no one has all the answers, it is the blessed hope of all believers. And we need hope because this has been another tough year for everyone. For example, in the Dallas, Texas metro area where I live, 74% of the population reports that during the time of COVID, they've been stressed out, depressed, and lonely. People are looking everywhere for hope, for purpose. And for instance, there's a group of people in downtown Dallas on the site where JFK was shot tragically in 1963 who often congregate in that area waiting for the miraculous turn of not the president, but the president's son, John Kennedy Jr., who died at age 38 in a tragic plane crash in 1999. What is that about? Well, they hope he will reappear, and then somehow all will be well again on the earth. Now, it's easy to think of these misguided people as being part of some bizarre cult, but I think it's just an example of the extremes that some people will go to to find some kind of reassurance that things are going to be better in this life, which sometimes seems to be whirling out of control. We all need hope in something that is real. But sadly, these people I've just mentioned are looking for hope in the wrong place in false temporary solutions. Now, if you happen to keep up with the traditions of the liturgical church calendar, you might know that every November 28 begins the four weeks of the Advent season which leads up to Christmas Day. The word Advent comes from the Latin and means the arrival or coming of Jesus at Christmas, and it can also refer to the second coming of Jesus. Eschatology is the study of the end times. Parousia is the Greek word that describes the return of Jesus, and both those words, parousia and eschatology, are theological terms which Scholars of Scripture like to use. We love to use those terms, and if they're new terms to you, you got a couple new words for the day. Hmm. Now, the first two weeks of Advent focus on the second coming of Jesus, and they're a time of preparing our hearts to get right with God. Church tradition does not want us to only focus on the last two weeks of celebrating the arrival of Christ as a baby at Christmas, nor are we to think of the second coming of Jesus as some pie in the sky by and by when we die. But we need to know there are things we can prepare to do now on the ground while we're still around. 
So I don't know about you, but I think it is always a special privilege to study the Word of God because the Bible is the only book in the world that we can read along with the author. Let me say that again. The Bible is the only book in the world that we can read along with the author. After all, the Holy Spirit is guiding us all the way. Isn't that something? Yeah, it is. In fact, it's an audio book because it's the, the living word and the author is still around. That's another encouraging thought. So here are a couple of points Peter makes in Second Peter chapter 3. If you happen to be taking notes, Roman numeral 1, don't lose heart even though Jesus has not yet returned. Now, there are always cynics who are critical of faith, and as Peter writes in his letter, some of them in 62 A.D. in Palestine, those people are questioning Jesus' promise to return because, after all, for them, it had been 30 years since Jesus was around. Now, today, there are still skeptics who are saying, 30 years? Come on. How about 2,000 years since Jesus made his visit to earth? He's not coming back. Well, that's a cynical point of view. And Peter's response to the skeptics then would probably be essentially what he's saying now, which is to explain that God is not limited to East Coast, West Coast, or even Holy Land standard time. In Second Peter 3, verse 8, Peter gives one of his most memorable one-liners when he says, speaking of God's timing, quote, one day is as a thousand years, end of quotation. In other words, God's perspective on time is completely different because he is free of time and space. After all, he created time and space. From Scripture, we've learned there are two different kinds of time. There is chronos, or chronological time, in which one minute follows another minute sequentially, and that's the kind of time in which we operate, and there's often... (laughs) There's often tension between people who are always on punctual chronos time as opposed to people who are not usually punctual on chronos time. So that's chronos time, chronological time, sequential time. The other kind of time is kairos time. That's a Greek word that means season or opportunity in which an event breaks into the present no matter what is going on in chronos time. For example, Can you remember the first time you fell in love? Of course, it's very possible that that was more about hormones than the desire for a lifelong commitment. But at that moment, it's as if time stood still. It didn't matter the month or the year or the country you were in because you were smitten. It was a season. It might have been a short season, but it was a season in which you, shall we say, temporarily lost your mind. And in most cases, it was a temporary phenomenon, thankfully. <laughs> now, now that's, that's kairos time, in which whatever else is occurring in life seems to stop, and that's the kind of time in which God operates. In fact, it's often called God's time. Another example is when God sometimes instantaneously performs a miraculous healing, and that can happen at any time. I've seen it happen, and it really doesn't matter what's going on the rest of the time. It just happened. So what's my point as I talk about time? My point is Peter is answering the critics and false teachers' comments about the long delay of the return of Jesus in Kronos time, of course, 
by explaining that the delay is an opportunity for people to repent and decide to follow Jesus. In fact, it's this delay that demonstrates God's patience. As verse 9 says, God does not wish that anyone would die without giving their life to him. Verse 9 in chapter 3 is similar to 1 Timothy 2, verse 3, and says this, God desires all people to be saved and to come to repentance. Now, neither one of these verses suggests that everyone will be saved, but they do tell us that the free and universal offer of salvation by faith is available for every person to accept or reject. Roman numeral two, how do we live as we wait? Peter says that during this in-between time, we are to live the life to which the Lord has called us by remaining faithful to him. And then we'll be at peace with ourselves and the Lord, and we're prepared for our, our next life with him. We'll never live a perfect life, but we do desire to be more like Jesus out of our love for him because he has certainly showed his love to us. After all, whatever we are going through now, whether it's painful or joyful, it's just a blip on the screen compared to the eternity. Now, regarding the second coming, there are four general opinions about these details, but I will not go into them today. There's many books and articles on that subject, and you can uh, check those out on your own. The important point to be made is Scripture says no one knows when Jesus will return except God the Father. And that's in Matthew 24, verse 36. On the other hand, Jesus does give us an answer as to when the end will come. Did you realize that we do have an idea when Jesus will return? Jesus answers that question of, of his return in Matthew 24, verse 14, when he tells his disciples this. This, kingdom of, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So Jesus is speaking about unreached people groups who have not heard the gospel. Now, I first heard about unreached people groups back in 1986, and at that time, it was estimated that there were around 17,000 such unreached people groups in the world. Today, no one really knows how many there are, and it's complicated because there are so many different languages in the world, and people need to be able to read at least part of the gospel in their own language, to know Jesus. For instance, in Uganda alone, there are 60 different languages. In Indonesia, there are 586 different languages. In India, there are over 2,200 different languages spoken. So how do we in the USA reach out to them? Well, typically we don't. Why? Because thankfully, India is sending out 20,000 missionaries to unreached people groups within India. Scripture is, a, is about mission of the Lord, mm -hmm. and not primarily about theology. Scripture is about theology in that it instructs us about God so we can talk scripturally about God on those missions. And, and don't make the mistake of putting the adjective overseas before the word mission. Because a mission, by definition, is a specific task that a person or a group is sent to perform. 
And friends, we are always on mission. So how are we doing on mission? Do we daily reflect Jesus in all we do? When food's delivered to our home or our workmen work in our home, do we ask how I can pray for them? That's just one example of mission. And Jesus says it clearly in Matthew 28 when he says, go. In a Greek, that's not a verb. That's a participle. It means as you are going, going about your daily life, make disciples of all ethnos. That's the Greek word for people groups. In other words, we always reach out to everyone with the good news, and it is good news. So Jesus talked about his return a lot, and I firmly believe in the second coming of Christ, and that one day the created world will be transformed and renewed by the return of God the Son, and a new earth will begin. Now, I don't know how it will happen, but it will be a moment of unimaginable awe. Oh, yeah. Peter... Peter says in verse 10 that it will occur like a thief, so it will suddenly, unexpectedly happen, an unstoppable interruption into our daily lives by God. There's Kairos, and it will mark the end of history as we know it. Now, wouldn't that be Kronos time? Uh, That would be Kairos time. Very interesting. So this is talking about questions of heaven, and that's Roman numeral three, questions about heaven. We have many questions about heaven, and the people who write books about heaven from a scriptural view have not had the advantage of dying themselves and then returning to tell us about heaven. But what do we know about heaven? Whatever it is comes from scripture, and there's quite a bit about that in scripture. And, uh, Bill, I hate to do a cliffhanger here, but uh, I think we need to take a break now. Ah, I like a cliffhanger. You've gotten good at that, Greg. Dr. Greg Heddington is my guest we're talking about. Second Peter chapter 3. So during the break, if you don't have your Bible out, go get it. Get the notebook, get the pen. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. So glad to have Dr. Gray Heddington as we're talking about Second Peter chapter 3. And he knows the art of the cliffhanger, and he gave us one. So, Greg, let's get to that cliffhanger. Well, Bill, we did talk about the second coming of Jesus. Yes, we did. in the first part, and now we're talking about heaven. And uh, for this information, we need to make some conjectures. I mean, educated guesses. After all... Um, we'd have to say that nobody's really had that opportunity of going uh, and coming back. So, But I can say with confidence that the more we read about this subject from scholars of Scripture, the less we will fear the afterlife. Also, if you trust in, commit to, and put your way down on the Lord, well, that's the Greek meaning of the word believe. So if you trust, commit to, and put your way down, then you are assured that you will be in heaven one day. Sometime I'd like to do a longer lesson on heaven, but for today, I'll just uh, ask some questions uh, briefly, and uh, we'll see what, um, what the answers might be. So here are some common questions about heaven. I'll give brief answers because if you want to know more exhaustive information, you might read Lee Strobel's 300-page book called The Case for Heaven or Randy Alcorn's 502-page book called Heaven. So here are some very succinct questions and answers. Question number one. How can I know if there is an afterlife? Answer, let's mention throughout the word of God. Question number two, will we have real bodies in heaven? Answer, yes, and even improved bodies. Question number three, 
will heaven be boring? Because I read a survey that says 66% of people don't want to live forever. Answer, heaven will not be boring because there will always be new things to learn. I mean, we have a creative God. Look around at people. No two people are exactly the same. That's amazing. Think of the creativity. Think of fashion. Think of women's shoes. I mean, it never stops. (laughs) You know, there's going to be new adventures, exploration of the universe, and how many other surprises? We have no idea. Question number four. What happens one second after we die? Answer, we're with the Lord. Question number five. Do people in heaven remember life on earth? Answer, yes. And we'll not only see how God worked out all those things for good, but we will not lose our identity. In fact, we will be improved. Question number six. Will we be busy in heaven? Answer, yes. And when we work, we will do it joyfully. Question number seven. Will we recognize family and friends? I know that's really a big one for a lot of people. It's for all of us. Answer, absolutely. And we'll have a better relationship with them than ever before. Question number eight. Will the new earth be like our earth was in the beginning? It's a great question. Answer, we expect the new earth to be somewhat like the Garden of Eden, only better. Question number nine, do babies go to heaven when they die? Answer, yes. And who knows, but we might see them even at an older age. Question number 10, will we eat, drink, rest, play games, and wear clothes? Some people are afraid they're going to be naked. Well, the answer is yes, we will do all those things, and we'll discover additional unknown pleasures that we never would have even thought about. Now, those are just 10 of many questions we could ask. Does that sound like paradise? Well, in fact, it is. In fact, I'm sort of starting to sound like a tour guide for heaven, but, <laughs> you know, that, that's a possibility. Yeah. I mean, a Viking cruise throughout uh, heaven and the planets. Uh, so uh, I've just given short answers to really important questions about heaven. And those books I mentioned go into much greater detail on those and, and many other questions. So I would recommend that you might want to pick up the, uh, the two books I mentioned earlier. Well, we know that no one is righteous. No one deserves to go to heaven. And yet, and yet, Jesus says in John five twenty four, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He or she does not come to judgment, but has passed from death to life. That's good news. And Jesus calls us to a particular kind of life as we get ready for heaven. Therefore, if you're still taking notes, Roman numeral four, preparing for heaven by living with suffering and hope. Now, if I said, who wants to sign up for a class in suffering? I wouldn't be one to raise my hand. I don't think anybody would want to be raising their hand. But our twin themes throughout First and Second Peter have been facing suffering on earth with hope as we remember that whatever present troubles we have are a blip in eternity. And suffering is that's the one necessary thing that builds our maturity in Christ. I'll tell you, I could think of a lot of other things I would rather build my maturity in Christ. Suffering is like at the bottom of that list. Mm-hmm. But 
as First Peter 4.12 says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trials you are suffering so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. That's First Peter 4.12. That, well, okay, let me just admit, I, I like an immature child. I sometimes struggle with small irritations that bother me even more so than significant events. I mean, somebody uh, clipping their nails where I'm sitting next to them or somebody making noise where I'm trying to pay attention to something. It's, it's the little things it's that, well, it just shows my immaturity. I mean, let's just put it out there. <laughs> because mm-hmm. it's, it's part of our fallen nature. We all have it. Some, some look this way, some look that way. But remember that Peter is not talking only about suffering for Christ, but about facing any of the hardships and frustrations we go through. After all, 1 Peter 2.11 says, We are aliens and sojourners in this world, because this is not our home. We are citizens of heaven. For example, I enjoy traveling to other countries for mission work as well as for pleasure. On those trips, I am always aware of not only representing Jesus, but also representing my country. Although I enjoy those trips, I never forget that I'm just visiting. I mean, afterwards, I want to go home. But I also want to leave an imprint of being a humble person and being a servant in that country while I'm there. In the same way, we represent a kingdom, not of this world. And as Christ followers, our lives are often more difficult because we want to live holy lives in a world in which power and winning and prestige are are often more admired than humility and service. And we know that. And yet, there is a very real invisible world that exists on this planet, right alongside our daily lives, with demons and angels who are in constant battle with each other for our souls. As one theologian says, if we had eyes to see, our skies would be darkened with the spirit world. Remember, Satan will never give up his temptations, and lies to discourage us. When we look around, it often seems like evil comes out on top with so much sin and tragedy and deaths, mass mass shootings. But there's the way things look and the way things are. I'm going to write that one down. There's the way things look and the way things are. God is always at work in this world And the reality is that he is sovereign over all things, no matter how things sometimes appear. That's why we are so encouraged by the numerous promises in the word of God, like this one from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 to 18, when he says, Our momentary troubles are achieving for us. And I'm going, okay, Paul, tell me, what what are our momentary troubles? problems achieving for us. And Paul tells us, our momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So if we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. What a promise. Friends, God's eternal glory will be the final destruction of sin, Satan, and death as the restoration of this world will come under God's kingdom. And that far outweighs a life filled with pain, misery, 
persecution. Maybe you're going through that, but we certainly know a lot of people spend their whole lives going through pain and misery and persecution, and some of us know those people. Scripture reminds us to stay faithful to the Lord, even as our life is just a blip on the screen. And as James 4.14 says, you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Think about that. Jesus, as the co-creator of the world, just arrived on earth from heaven, and he had incredible, wonderful stories about heaven. He tells them some of us about those things and some of his parables. He talks about the harvest of the crop, the fruit from the tree, the close of the day for the laborers, the profit from the investment, the house that stands in the storm. Jesus knows if we rejoice in our sufferings and count it as joy, as James said, then we will not be fascinated with this world, but the world to come. And let me just end with this. A poll was taken a few years ago about what three phrases do people most want to hear. Number one, I love you. Number two, I forgive you. Number three, supper's ready. (laughs) And we as Christ followers know that as citizens of heaven, we are loved, we are forgiven, and one day we will celebrate our Lord and other Christ followers in the wedding feast of the Lamb in our real home. Awesome. Greg, thank you so much for the teaching. It's been wonderful as always. All right. That's uh, all the time we have with Dr. Greg Hennington. We'll take a short break and be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.